So, Bob, I want to get into some personal things. I, I Someone wrote in about yeah. a breakup that they have been struggling with for the past nine years. They, they had a breakup nine years ago, oh. and they've been really struggling with it. Oh. And they have a question specifically to you. Oh. And so I, I want to get into that. What do you say, Bob? I feel sad already. Yeah. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Uh, and I'm your friend, Bob, who's sad already, um, an old friend from grad school. Yeah. So this episode is, is just going to be for patrons of the podcast, because I imagine that we're going to get into some personal things. And I always figure it's better to just limit that exposure to the patrons, which is a much smaller audience mm-hmm. than the entire world of the internet. So it's a growing audience. It is. It's pretty impressive, but it's still a small portion. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. I'm happy to share. Um, and I understand what you're saying. Yeah. I'm just impressed with, you know, what you've done. Yeah. So if you want to listen to this episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. If you're not a patron, you will just hear the first, you know, it'll end right now. But if you, you want to hear the full episode where, I asked Bob about a breakup he went through many years ago and, and how he got through it. Because mm-hmm. I, I imagine he has a lot of wisdom mm-hmm. in that you have to become a patron of the podcast. So do that now if you want. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone people. Katie from the UK says, Bob said he struggled with dating until he processed the grief about a previous breakup. What did he do so he could move on? I've really struggled to move on from a breakup in 2012, nine years ago. Mm. I've been doing a lot of work on myself since then and have been trying to, I've been trying dating for five years, but I think I've been holding back partly because of fear of pain and avoiding the grief from that breakup. What do you say, Bob? I made a very conscious choice to go through it. So I, I probably said this, I was, she, she had a black Honda Civic hatchback. And every time I saw one of those on the street, wasn't like I saw cars. Like my heart would jump out of the my chest and grab the back bumper and get dragged down the road because it was like, oh, that was her car, and uh, like like that would matter, right? And um, what do you mean? Well, even if it was her car, what difference does it make? We're still broken up, right? But somehow my brain would just like, oh, that's her car, right? So one time it was so intense, I drove by this pub that we went to. I said maybe we went to once, and I hallucinated her license plate number. So I drove around the block and I looked at it again. I'm like, Ugh, I made that up in my head. Really? Like you saw the I license plate? I saw plate. her license plate. Yeah. Which, so, pub, which pub? I'm curious. The Fiddler Inn up there on Wedgwood. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Nice, nice place. Anyways, um, so I couldn't stop myself from automatically seeing those things. So what I did though is I said to myself, okay, Bob, if you were going to accept that this is over, if you were just act like it's over, what would you do? And I said, well, I'd turn my head and I'd go where I'm going. And I remember the first time I did it, I was coming north on 15th, um, and I saw a black Honda Civic hatchback on the Campus Parkway. There's a lot of them. Yeah, they were everywhere. I mean, I, maybe they're still everywhere now. I don't see them anymore. Are you talking about the flat ones on the back? The, the flat hatchback? No, no, the kind of the newer ones, the sort of curved... curved okay. I know the one you mean. Yeah. And uh, so... I saw one and I'm like, okay, well, it doesn't matter, right? It is, it isn't, it doesn't matter. Actually, it probably wasn't because I think she moved out of the state. But it doesn't matter because I said, well, what would you do? And I turned my head and I 
drove where I'm going. And when I did that, it was six years after the breakup. It was like we just broke up all over again, the sadness and the intensity and the wish to kind of stare at the black Honda Civic hatchback like that would do something. But I didn't. I just kept driving. And I did this for two solid months. Just every time I saw one, I'm like, okay, Bob, what would you do if you're going to act like it's over? And after a while, they started to fade. And I don't see them anymore. Um, And it was sort of that set of behaviors. If you were going to act like this is over, what would you do? So was that the ongoing entrenchment grief factor that a part of you wasn't really accepting that it was over? Yes. Yeah. So too painful to, to think about that. Yeah. Well, for me, it was this story about, um, I'll never be happy again, or I'll never find anybody else, or, you know, um, that was as good as it's ever going to get kind of like that. That was that last one. If someone had come to you or you say you now go back to you, say, I don't know, six months after the breakup, 12 months after the breakup and said, Look, you could really save yourself five years of grief here if you just do X, Y, and Z. Would you have been able to do it? I don't think I would have been willing at that point. But able? Yeah, I would have been able. Willing, not willing. Not willing to let it go. Just not willing. Like what would you have said? I'm not willing to give up hope. I think there's a possibility. Yeah, I might not even have said it out loud. I would have just held it in my heart just silently. Like... Like, I need this to be possible? Yeah, like that. I need it or what? I'll never be happy again. That was as good as it's ever going to get. No one will ever love me. That was my one shot. That was my one shot. Yeah. Because I'm not lovable? Um, no, but because my experience with her was different from my experience in past relationships where I didn't feel the restless irritations and that stuff. And I, I have a different take on that now. I didn't feel them back then, but I have a different take on why that is. Um, but I thought to myself, you know, you know a lot of people, been in some, not many relationships, but you've been on dates and stuff, and you know what happens, and you get annoyed with people and, you know, restless and like, you know, grumpy. And um, I didn't feel that way with, in this relationship. So I thought, this is it. This is the one. This is it. This is all this is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. So to accept defeat would be saying, I'm never going to have happiness again. Yeah. That's right. And could you, again, time machine, go back a year after the breakup. What year was that a year after the breakup? Mm. Was that like 1989? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you say, uh, you know, first off, invest in Google because that's going to do well. Right. Um, but two in Amazon, but three, um, you say you are worthy and you can find someone else. It you're going to have to wade through a lot of duds before you find Colleen. But it's you know I won't tell you her name because it'll screw things up. But you know there's some it, it's coming. It just takes time. Would that have helped? Would that have? That's a great question. I think. I don't know if there was any getting through to me. I think I was just clung tight. Um, you know how like you have that um, with PTSD, you have that experience that you're fundamentally changed. Yeah, yeah, that I had that. Did it affect everything you did? Like just going to work was yeah. 
tinted in this. Yep. She's not there anymore. She's not there. What's the point? There's no. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I was hanging out with you a lot back then, and mm-hmm. I remember we would talk about it, mm-hmm. and I knew it was hard for you, but mm-hmm. I, I didn't. I don't think I knew that it was plaguing you that much. I didn't have any sense of proportion, you know. Like, was young. Yeah. Didn't understand much yeah. about myself or human humans. Yeah. Uh, I think I. I think I knew. If I, I mean, it was so long ago, but I think I knew you were sad. Mm-hmm. I think there were times w- late night when I would see a darkness that mm-hmm. I thought, "Oh, I, I wonder if, I wonder if he's feeling this way all the time." Do you yeah. remember those days? Oh yeah, <laughs> I was not. I was feeling. I, there was always a sense of something broken or missing or dead, and kind of anger, angry. Too. Oh, very angry. I don't would say very angry, but I mean not to not that I saw, yeah. but I, I saw a, a tinge of uh-huh. um I don't know what to say, like nihilistic anger or something. Yeah. Or like yeah. just like you know, the way you might feel in when you're in grief yeah. and you're just like, What's the point? Yeah. Just Yeah. Yeah. Well you yeah. got out of it. Yeah. So you're saying well, what's the story? What's the meaning? What's the moral? Uh, for me, it, it's sort of like, I don't know if I'll ever be happy again. The only thing I know to be 100% true is that relationship is over. I wasn't even saying to myself, and it will always be so, though it's not a lottery ticket I would have bought. Um, I was staying in the present moment. Whatever becomes of me, this relationship is over. Yeah. But looking back now, yeah. you, 2021, mm-hmm. is it when we go through horrible things, which it was, mm. sometimes we have a, a meaning like, well, I'm a better person or I needed to go through that or oh, life throws curveballs. You know, what's the, if any, meaning that you have from it? I don't. I don't have anything like that. Just thing. tragedy. Just just a just, black mark on yeah. wasted years. Yeah. Oh, those. Yeah, that was six years uh, wasted. There were some good things that came out of that time, but I wouldn't say that I make meaning. I don't make a particular meaning of the grief or the breakup. Uh, did anything good happen? Not that anything should have, but. Did anything good result from those times? Mm. Yeah, I'm sure stuff did, but nothing that I can think of right off the top of my head. You know, there, you know, with all this hindsight, I can say, well, there's growing that's happening. It's happening, but I'm not. I can't point at any one thing and say, well, that's it. That's growth. Um, there were some creative projects that sort of came out of it. I made a pop up book that was kind of fun. Um, was that directly motivated by? Oh, that? that was our idea. We were going to do that together. Oh, it was the two of you. Yeah, and you started it when you were with her. Yeah, very, very casually. Do you want to talk about the? Have we have we talked about the specifics? I don't know. I don't think we have. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's not it's you know kind of fun. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we, well, we were we somehow we came up with the idea of making a pop up Kama Sutra. Like yeah. that would be kind of funny, you know, movable, whatever. Yeah. 
And so we spent um, some time thinking about that over. Neither one of us was an artist, so we were going to have to learn how to do that. And neither one of us had ever done any paper engineering, which is a thing. We were going to have to learn how to do that. But um, that was something we were going to do. But it was uh, what we talked about doing. We didn't actually do it. And then when we broke up. How did you come up with the idea? I don't know. I came up with it. I don't know why. Yeah. We're going to call it the Kama Papan Sutra. And uh, so I devoted myself to that for the next two years after the breakup, thinking, this will woo her back. Really? Oh, yeah. I did not know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't think I would have advertised that, but I did. Interesting. Yeah. Was there any chance of wooing her back? No. No. Yeah, I didn't get that impression No, at there all. was no chance. No. I mean, you were with her, what, for a year? Eight months. Yeah. Uh, my, yeah. I mean, yeah. We knew each other in school. Yeah. And then I was with her for eight months. Yeah. And then that was it. Yeah. Yeah, my impression, well, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, sure. that you were more into her than she was into you. That's probably true. Like during the relationship. That's probably true. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, eight months kind of a thing, it's, late it's like 20s. Kind of, kind of. Yeah, you're just, it's like, well, you know. Yeah. I was got, I, I mean, I didn't know precisely, but I remember after the breakup, I thought, yeah, I bet you... I don't. She, looking back, I don't know how infatuated she was with Bob. Probably not that. Yeah, much. I do remember destroying her necklace, though. We've talked about that in the podcast before. That was at the birthday party, right? Yeah. What happened? So she in the in the living or in her bathroom had all these crazy necklaces, uh-huh. and she was a small person. Uh-huh. So I don't know how she. Accessorized like that, but there was this giant necklace that had. It looked like a bunch of Christmas tree balls. It was it was huge, you know, and and chaotic, you know, very granola. Not like Mardi Gras bead kind of thing. No, no, it was more like something you'd buy at at the mall, Mm -hmm. something that was fancy, Mm -hmm. like wood heavy beads, like huge ones, but various. I remember there was like an elephant on there or something. Anyway. I vaguely remember that. Yeah, so I put it on as a joke and was walking around the party with it. (laughs) And she's like, oh, you found my necklace. I'm like, yeah. And then later on in the night, we're outside with Travis Travis and Hunter. And and, and so they were were like 10 years old at the time. That's right. And I'm like, let's climb a tree. Right, I remember that. So I climbed this tree in the front by the street. And, you know, this is is basically like city Seattle. And so the, the tree is like... It's not really a climbable. It's not. It's like an old cherry tree or apple tree or something. Yeah. Anyway, I climb up there. And then on the way down, there was this, you know, th- you had to kind of jump down from the last branch right. because there wasn't, there weren't low branches. And so I, you know, prepared to jump. And as I bent over, I, I unbeknownst to myself, caught the necklace on a, on a little stub on the branch. And when I jumped down... I mean, it's a miracle I didn't break my neck. Yeah. But the thing just shattered, and all of the beads just went flying. And I just stood there. And, you know, Hunter and Travis are laughing at me because, you know, (laughs) they're just like, ah. But I'm like, I just, I don't even know. Is that worth money? You know, I don't have money to replace that. How do you replace it? I feel awful. Like, I just ruined the night. What's wrong with me? (laughs) Sure. All that stuff that anybody wouldn't have. What did you do? I don't know. I, I, I apologized up and down oh, to okay. her. Yeah. And I don't remember. I remember her being a little annoyed, but I don't think it was that sentimental to her. Oh, okay. I think I think she didn't care that much about it. But yeah. 
anyway, so so you did the Kama Sutra. Yeah, let me tell everyone about the Kama Sutra pop-up book. (laughs) This thing was elaborate. It was huge. It was, at least the prototype that Bob was working on, it was a good... I don't know. I'm going to say like a f- at least 18 inches tall. You know, it was like a it was like a the sort of book that wouldn't fit on your bookshelf, would only fit like on a coffee table. table. And they were elaborate. You know, you think of a pop up book in the olden days, yeah. and it was just like one little thing. Yeah. You know, but I think you started to develop this book at a time when pop up books started to get way yeah. more elaborate. Yeah. I mean, you go to the store now uh-huh. and you pull up a pop-up book you're just like whoa it'll be like a a giant ship with like six different things moving and like delicate like you know intricate things that you think one's one false move you're going to tear this thing apart yeah and you had spent so much time and you had to design the characters and these people are having sex you know if you don't know what kama sutra is it's ancient tradition of I don't know how to describe it, but... It's a sex manual. Sex manual. Yeah. From India, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. And there were all these different sex positions yep. that were happening, and Bob right. had all the moving parts, and yeah. there were several moving uh, things on each page. And, yeah. and and this paper engineering thing, Bob had protractors and yeah. rulers, and yeah. he had, he, you know, in order to sell this to a publisher, uh-huh. you had to have a working prototype, yeah. and then yeah. they, would, they would mass produce it. Right. And it was like assumed that one day Bob was going to be this super famous Kama Sutra pop-up book guy. Because, and he had a huge desk in his office that was dedicated oh, just to this book. That's right. And every time he went over to, to, to the house, he'd be like, okay, show me what. And you had like, what, five or six pages that, that you had going, right? 14 pages when I was done. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's like a full book, you was, know? Yeah. And I remember thinking, this is going to sell because... Uh, who doesn't like sex, <laughs> or I guess not everyone, but most people like sex. And then you have like pop up books and entertainment. Yeah, and, it's playful. Yeah, a fun wedding gift or something mm-hmm. right. like. Hey, this is the start off your sex life. You know, it just seemed like it would be one of those things. Yeah. And then you just gave up on it. Well, I got an agent, believe it or not, uh, in New York City, who tried to sell it and. Um, Made six prototypes, uh, sample prototypes. So it wasn't the full book, but six sample prototypes and continued to work on it. And the agent couldn't sell it and eventually gave up. And then I did a little bit with it. And then I kind What of, did the publisher say? That basically you can't sell this in middle America. So they're, they're expensive to make. But there's so many people who live on the coasts uh-huh. who would buy it. Right. Plus, we don't know that people in middle America wouldn't buy it. That was That was what was said you know like they have to put it on a bookshelf at barnes and noble and is there going to be a market for it is there going to be you know because because they're expensive to make yeah because there's a lot of well aren't there kama sutra books in barnes and noble yes so i know yeah yeah and actually um i mean a big problem is the publisher would have to invest a lot lot, of money because it's not just printing a bunch of pages this thing is like Every book is like a huge investment. Yeah. I mean, how much was the, like, just to, what were you going to price the book at? I didn't know anything about that. But I it mean, would have been pricey. It wouldn't be $20. Well, 
probably be like 35, 40 bucks, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So each book and then they would probably, yeah. So it'd be, it's harder, it harder sell, harder, yeah. you know, ba- you know, harder risk, bigger Higher risk. risk. Yeah. That was, that's the thing. Yeah. So, and then somebody made one. There's actually a published, um, so I, is that when you were like, okay, my, I, I'm done. Someone actually beat me to it. It was, yeah, I, I was like that. I bought it and it's actually not that good. Yeah. It's kind of boring. Yeah. I remember it was smaller it's than, small than yours and was. It's not, it doesn't have very much interesting stuff in it and yeah, stuff moves and you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Any idea how successful it was? That no, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, my interest waned and I put it aside. Yeah. Pursued other things. How many people do you think like Katie from UK yeah. are suffering from ongoing, and grief is ongoing and yeah. there's nothing wrong with it, but, right. but well, tell me, Bob, so yeah. three years into your grief, knowing what you know now about grief and how it's normal to have it last a long time and it's a good thing, it means yeah. that you cared and life sucks and you can't get around it, was your grief excessive? Yeah, I think I kept it alive. You know, like you can pick at a scab and you keep it alive. I did that. I very actively did that. How, how did you do that? Just refuse to accept that it, it is over and refuse to, um, well, let's see, I don't know, be sad. Um, refuse to be sad? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, just like I think if I got sad, I'd just throw myself into, you know, I'm going to work on the pop-up book and, you know, just do that. And oh, really? throw myself at that. Huh. Yeah. So you had a hard time just sitting with the sadness. I did. I refused to do it. I can't see that about you. Um, yeah. Uh, well, to me, it wasn't sad. It was, um, I'll never be happy again. Yeah. So, I mean, it. it's, I don't mind being sad. I don't have a problem with sad. I never have had a problem with sad, but... To be sad would be to accept that it is over, and so I just refused to do it. So my sad got stuck. I really think that's what happened. Is I don't mind being sad. I just refuse to accept that it's over, and then therefore stayed stuck. Without, you know, like sad is like it's like digesting food. It has to move through you. Yeah. I just refuse to let it digest. Yeah. Refuse to. Interesting. And it became excessive because of that. Yeah. But there was no way out of it, I'm hearing. There was no. no way to convince you. No, I was I was not open to that it is over. And then I worked with this guy, and he's like, oh, oh, you want to tell that story about the Honda Civics with your... Okay, well, you can tell it, but what you have to... The thing that's a fact is that it is over. Not that it never was, and not that it never will be again, though who would bet on that? Just that right now, 100% the truth is it is over did that help yeah that that's actually the catalyst for me yeah and that was the catalyst who knows if there's other bits along the way because six years passed between whenever it happened and whenever i started doing that there's probably other bits too but that was the the explicit last bit that led me to letting it actually go that i can relate to as a therapist i've and maybe you have too had clients that i've had that exact dynamic with where I will be saying things like, uh, yeah, I mean, it's different, but I'm thinking of one client where mm-hmm. I would, I would frequent maybe, maybe every session there would come to some point where I'd say something like, so I hear you 
that you're suffering, and I hear you that you are looking for signs that things might reignite with your ex, or not even ex, but your this person. Yeah. And you had, you know, sort of aftermath sex, you know. Sure. After breakup sex right. recently, and that indicates to you that uh, things are back on again. Right. But we've been here before. Right. And I, you know, you're not here in therapy for me to argue with that. But I just have to say, as your therapist, hearing what you've told me and knowing enough about human nature that I'm going to, if I was a betting person, I would bet that you're in the, you're in that stage where it's over and you don't know it yet. Yeah. Or it's hard for you to accept, which is fine. Right. Uh, But I'm worried that if you don't, think about that possibility or at least allow for some ambiguity there, then when the time comes, it's going to hurt a lot and, or it's going to cause so much suffering as you bump up against reality while holding on to something that's not true. Definitely. And that's a hard conversation to have because, because yeah. it's like the client isn't there asking, Hey, could you confront me on my distorted hopes of this ha- reigniting? Right. Um, and what do I know? Maybe it will reignite. You right. know what I mean? Like that's, that's the thing is what what you can say that's a hundred percent true is it is over, or having sex is not um, an indicator that you're going to be uh, that you're a couple. Have you had clients like that? Oh, I'm sure I have, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Yeah. So the story is. L- you had to go through that because that's just what life threw threw at you. I say that what was needed for me to accept that it's over was not present, and um, the way it went is six years, and it became present. And if you hadn't met her, and you just never, and you just continued dating, and then eventually met Colleen, would your life be the same? That's, I don't know. Yeah. I met Colleen a year after I accepted that it was over. And, um, I, I had, you know, me, I, I, you know, you were there. So, you knew I was dating during that six year period. I was dating. I was even in a one year relationship with somebody in the middle of all that. And, um, in retrospect, I can recognize that my heart wasn't really open, that I still had the belief that, um, I was never going to be happy again. And that was as good as it was ever going to get. And um, I think that could have happened with Colleen if I had not accepted that that relationship was over and then just gone through the grief that one goes through. The grief took take care of itself. When I accept, accepted reality, grief took care of itself. There was a tremendous amount of sadness. And then, you know, um, it fades. Like, you don't see the car. You don't find yourself staring at the old apartment when you drive down the freeway. Was it 100% necessary that you went through those six years? No, but I, I can't imagine my life unfolding some other way cause I don't have, but no, it wasn't. Um, I, if I could go back in time and I were going to do it different, part of me says, don't do that, Bob, because, um, you know, you'll never meet Colleen, which is probably true. Yeah. Uh, but if I could go back in time and for shorten that grief, I would say to myself, it's over. You don't have to worry about the future but you do know that now it's over. 
it was and now it isn't and that's reality just right so when you see that car it's still over when you look for the apartment it's still over god i wonder how many of us would could you know wish that we could go back in time and say that to ourselves sure. at some point <laughs> yeah you know yeah just like it's over what, what, what would you do do you have a, a picture in your head I mean, not specifically, but I'm yeah. just, I'm hearing all the echoes or maybe just intuiting the listeners so many moments or just like, even like career moments where mm-hmm. you're just like, look, it's, it's over yeah, or it's not like that. It's not like you think it is. It feels this way, but it's not. And the sooner you kind of really yeah. feel that, the, then you can then it's not like, you know, the story that you're telling is great because it's not like you're saying it's over, get over it. You're saying Mm -hmm. it's over, start being sad. Yeah. You know, it's over. Now you can start crying. Yeah. Just the facts. The facts are it is over. Yeah. Whether, you know, like, I mean, I wasn't delusional. It's not like I didn't know that, but I wasn't really willing to accept it like a hundred percent from, you know, like within. So what was that voice then, you know, that irrational voice five years in, what would it say? I'll never be happy again. Or, well, maybe. Well, maybe what? Who knows what, I don't know what the future holds. Maybe we'll get back together. Maybe this, maybe that, you know, that kind of. Did you actively reach out to her at all or? Not after the first two years. Okay. And and it's not like I stalked her. I wasn't frequent, but I, I stopped after the first two years. You'd email her or call her or something. I, I wrote a letter to her sister asking if she had any potential for influence. God, embarrassing. Um, how long How long after the breakup? Oh, that was when I lived with Todd. So that was Ballard. So that was 18 months. And you wrote the sister? Yeah. How, did the sister respond? Yeah, she did. Oh. She said, I'm sorry, and no, I can't help you. She was very gracious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there were maybe three or four phone calls I had with her, not the sister, but with her. And then the last time I spoke with her, um, she told me she was leaving town. She was moving out of state. And, um, and then, and then I, I presume, I presume she moved. Yeah. 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 So there was this, uh, how many times a day did you think about her or a week or something? Well, she was in and out of my head all day. All day. Yeah. Five years in. Yeah. Just wake up. Oh, her. Yeah. I wonder what she's doing. Yeah. I miss her. Right. I wonder if she's dating somebody else, that sort of thing. And you were actively dating during this time. I was. And you had a long-term girlfriend during this time. One year. And you still thought about her, the ex. I did. All the time you were with the other gal. Yes. Uh, less intensely during that. But every day? Um, I'd say she walked through my head every day, and there remained the fixed belief that I'll never be happy like that again. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. A, a lot of it, I just want to point out, is totally normal. Yeah. Uh, anyone, you know, one of the things that I, uh, one of my very first sort of psychologicalisms that I, um, you know, I remember in math, we had this teacher who, he kept, he made us keep this list called uh, theorems and postulates or something. And it was this list of 
tenants in uh, geometry. geometry. Yeah. Awesome. And I remember thinking, hmm, that's kind of an interesting system where you have this list of rules, list of, um, you know, sureisms. And I think that influenced me. A few years later, I had this this theorem and postulate about human relationships. And one of them was, you're not a real human until you're dumped hard. Ha! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, like uh-huh. you're still a child essentially uh-huh. until you are dumped hard, and uh-huh. then you be, then you become an adult. And if that's at 13, or if that's at 35, then you become an adult. Now, I don't want to say you know you're a no. little child if no. that's there, but you have to go through that. And in my estimation, before you understand how fantasy plays into one's hopes and dreams for a relationship Mm -hmm. because when you get dumped hard and before that you probably still had the fantasy notion that true love to quote princess bride (laughs) is is possible mm-hmm. the kind of love that we felt or hoped for when we were six months old, mm-hmm. 12 months old mm-hmm. with our parents. Mm-hmm. And, and we impose that fantasy and we might even fight about it, but we feel it when in the good moments, we actually feel it like, or at least we feel the possibility. This is forever. It's going to be magical. It's never going to be hard. We're going to be in love the whole time. All those other couples are chumps. <laughs> and we are the best, you know, mm. and this is something special. And this person loves me exactly the way I want them to love me. Mm. They are there for me exactly the way I want them to be there for me. It's mm. never going to be different. We are, we are one, all the love songs. Sure. And then you get dumped hard and you, you have to wrestle with this, this new reality that is telling you, no, something went wrong. And what's the conclusion? You know, what do we conclude from that point? Do we conclude that life is over and I'll never be happy? Yep. Do we conclude that the person was a malignant narcissistic gaslighter who (laughs) decided to uh, prey on me? Mm. Do we conclude that feminism is ruining society and that's why she broke up with me? Or do we conclude that mature love and relationships will never be like it was in the womb? And that is sad. And that's a loss. We all have to grieve. And this is a, an object relations thing as, as well, uh-huh. ego psychology thing. We all have to grieve that fantasy. Yeah. You know, we know what that feels like. Or we know... We know what that could have felt like. And but and many of us know what that feels like. When we were nine years old and we were being held as we were drifting off to sleep by our mothers, mm. and she was softly singing a lullaby to us, and we were, you know, feeling good, and we don't have any traumas yet, and everything is possible and I have her full attention and she's just looking into my eyes and all she wants to do is be with me. And all I want to do is be with her. And I don't know of anger or murder or 
cheating or breaking up or uh, working too much or alcoholism. I'm just staring into my mother's eyes and everything will be okay. We all know what that feels like, I hope. <laughs> and when we first start dating, I think we're trying to return there yeah. for good reason. Who doesn't want that? But we can never have that again. No. <laughs> we can have glimpses, but, you know, particularly long-term relationships, which are, you know, great, but you you start, you don't have those electric moments as much anymore. And that's okay. You, you gain something in it. You lose something in it. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I wonder if from the outside looking at you, Bob, if that was part of it. Oh, I wouldn't have any doubt. That's definitely part of it. You know, I'm kind of a late bloomer when it comes to romance and dating and the whole thing. So I think I refused. I did not treat her like a human. I treated her like an ideal. Uh. And um, I imagine as a result of that, I was not fully participating in the way I could in the relationship because I wasn't relating to another human. And some of that's like normal, you know, eight months in, it's still honeymooning, right? They say, the hired had said, uh, in the first year of a relationship, you don't relate to the other person. You relate to the, to some idea, uh, some fantasy about what or who they are. Anyways, um, I did not relate to her like a human. I have no idea if she related to me like a full person. Um, Everybody projects, so you know it's probably not a not a, not a black and white thing. So, um, um, you know, two things have happened uh, over the years as I've just sort of lived with all that. One is I think I've discovered I probably there were things about her I didn't like. I'm not trying to bash her; she's lovely, but um, there there were things about her that I didn't like. And I didn't show her me, a lot of me. I, I, um, part of the reason I think I stayed stuck is because I spent those eight months wooing her and she wasn't real. Mm. So, and, and I thought it was fragile. And then when it ended, it's like, oh, I lost something really precious. Well, I don't know if I ever really had it. I was so busy trying to win her that I didn't actually pay attention to what's it like to have her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I had to learn that. Mm. With Katie from the UK? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I would like to suggest that you just focus on what is true right now, what is 100% factually true right now, and notice if you have sneaky thoughts. Like like for me, it was that relationship is over, and then the sneaky truth that I wouldn't say out loud, but that was rattling around in my head is, and I'll never be happy again, which is a prediction. And nobody actually knows. It's possible to be true. I wouldn't argue with it. It's like, well, yeah, you can't have, I wouldn't try to argue with that part of me because you can't know it. It's the future. Yeah. But you can't know it. It's the future. So it is a prediction. And by definition, it is not a fact, right? They don't even know what the weather's going to be tomorrow. I mean, not really. Mm-hmm. Anyways. Um, it certainly wouldn't be the norm that after a breakup, you would never be happy again. <laughs> that's a great point. It isn't, it isn't the norm. You just look at people. So there's reason to think that that's not true. So but what, so what are the facts? And then just rivet yourself to them and allow 
whatever wants to unfold to unfold. So if you notice a rebellion in your mind, you don't want to fight fire with fire. You don't want to try to argue with it. Um, But you can move with it. You can move with it. You can ask it. You can be interested and curious about whatever that is because that part of you is suffering or in pain or, you know, it deserves attention and care and curiosity and interest. It doesn't doesn't mean that what it says is is the facts. It just means that it's an it's an aspect of you, and it's part of, probably I would guess if you're anything like me, it's what's keeping you stuck, mm-hmm. is the false belief. Yeah, this your moment of transition or your moment of clarity. Yeah, reminds me of a lot of other stories you hope you hear people say. Someone will have a moment of clarity with alcoholism or something, right? Where they they fought and fought and fought and maybe they got sober a couple of times, but they always knew, eh, I'm going to drink again. And then one, this one thing happened, who knows what it was. It just clicked. Like, I don't need alcohol. In fact, it's really bad for me. <laughs> like I now really get it. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not going to equate what you're saying with addiction. It's more well, of just this moment of clarity. Like, yes. a, like a, a similar moment for me was, yeah. I am one of those people, and I've actually joined a subreddit called Thanatology or Thanatopia, or anyway, it's the it's the study of death. death. But but the subreddit has to do with what people will call death anxiety, which actually drives me crazy because it's not. I'm not afraid of death. Uh-uh. I'm. I mean, some people are. I'm more bummed by the finite nature of life. Yes. Uh, yeah, I will die. And honestly, the quicker, the better. Like one of the things that I don't fear is going down in an airplane crash. When I feel turbulence, there is a part of me that's like, it's going down. We're going to, oh God, Bob, one of the stupidest things that I've been doing lately, there is a whole niche on YouTube of recreations of airplane crashes <laughs> where they will actually get the black box recording and they'll, and they'll get a airplane simulator software and they will simulate exactly what went wrong and and i've learned and there's actually a uh a channel where this guy i can't remember his name like min min talk or something but he is a pilot currently in europe and i think he's spanish or something and Hmm. he he'll break down everything he'll he breaks out the specs you know because he has access to all that kind of stuff sure and so he'll describe these events. And so, but this is during the pandemic, of course, when there's no, I haven't been on an airplane in oh, 15, right. 16 months or something. And so, but anyway, when I think about dying in an airplane, I don't, I, I'm like, it's probably quick, you know, relatively. And yeah. it doesn't bother me. What bothers me is that me and everyone I love and everyone that I have loved and everyone I will love will just be you know, wiped off the face of the planet. Now, if there's an afterlife, then that will be very, if it's a good afterlife, then that will be, or at least neutral, then my fears will not be realized. But, you know, there's a chance that there isn't anything after that. I'm I'm still holding out for an afterlife, but if there isn't an afterlife, which, you know, is the logical explanation, Mm. But who knows? Right. Uh, but certainly, it's a possibility. Yeah. Um, then, that's such a bummer. Yeah. You know. Uh huh. 
uh, I've, I remember early in my life, 14 years old, thinking about that and thinking, what a bummer. I mean, the other side of it is we'll live life, live life to its fullest, which, which I have done. You know, I, I'm, I'm actually really proud of the fact that I realized this when I was 13 years old and have been living my life like, fuck it. Like, I am not going to deal with this shit because I got limited time. You know, if someone invites me to something, I'm just like, and I don't want to go. I just don't go. I yeah. mean, nine times, nine times out of it. Sometimes I do, but a lot of times I'm just like, yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> or if I am suffering, like, from a coworker that annoys me, I'm just like, I got one chance on this plan. I'm not going to waste it on this person, you know, or a job that I don't like. You know, as soon as I start getting annoyed, I'm like, I don't want to, I'm going to spend a third of my life working. I don't want to do this, you know, so what do I got to do? Well, go back to graduate school, right. become a therapist, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. So, but at the same time, so with my, I don't know what to call it, existential uh, threat, existential anxiety, I think is the term that people would say. Yes. And there was, it would always plague me and I would, particularly at night, and I would just feel this, this plummeting in my soul and my gut of it's it's all worthless <laughs> like we're just in a with thanos's snap we're just gonna be gone like dust in the wind and i will be i will be i will never wake up i will not you know when i cease to exist i will i will be dead i will be turned off my body will be a hunk of rotting cells that like maggots will work their way through and bacteria will break down and I will become dust or I'll just be cremated or burned up in a ball of fire of jet fuel, whatever the case may be. And I won't wake up. I will just cease to be the great void, the deep emptiness. So empty that it's, it's not even empty because empty implies that there's something to be empty it's just, you're just gone. gone. And I found on the internet that, you know, there's other people like me and they always bump up against, and whenever you talk to people who aren't like me, are you like me? In what way? In this way. Oh, yeah. You are? Absolutely. So you feel what I'm saying? I do. Oh, okay. Because a lot of people aren't. <laughs> Most they're, people aren't. They're lucky. Yeah. Most people, I I think most people, it just doesn't, I don't know why, it just doesn't really register with them. They're just like, well, I don't know, yeah, everyone dies. and you know, it, But the things that they, and that's fine if that's what they're like, because what Great. are you going to do? But they'll argue with me. Oh. And they'll say, well, Kirk, before you were born, you weren't alive then. Sure. So what's the big deal? Mm. I'm like... You can't understand the difference between me not existing in the past and me not existing in the future. You you don't you, you can't to, to you it's the same thing. Like yeah, if I never existed and never came into existence, then I wouldn't care because I wouldn't have anything to care. There'd be no I. There'd be no me. Yeah. But now there's a me. Yeah. The universe or God or whatever has bestowed upon me a me. And I now have the vision of the future and I, you know, I yeah. want, I want to hold on to this. Right. You gave me something universe. I want, I want to keep it, yeah. you know? 
So that that doesn't that's not uh, helpful. Or they'll say, "Well, just don't think about it." I'm mm. like, "Well, geez, you know, yeah, wouldn't right. that be nice?" That'd be nice. Or I don't know. They'll say other things. And on this subreddit, there's all this all these people that are saying things like, "Yeah, you know, don't you hate it when people say this and that?" And I'm like, "Yeah, okay." So this is all getting to my moment of clarity. Where and I've talked to this before. I was researching for my dissertation. And I was looking at phenomenological research and I came across this one study of, they interviewed a bunch of people like me and you, and they had them describe what it was like. And they were trying to get to the fundamental, you know, experience, the phenomenology of this personality expression or something, this Mm -hmm. human, human uh, experience. And as I'm reading this study, it just hit me that I'm not alone. I'd heard other people talk about it, but reading this study, I had this deep sense of, oh, I'm normal. This is a thing. And it was in that moment that, and since that moment, I don't know how long, it's like, I don't know, 10 years ago. Mm. I, 99.9% of the, of the, um, struggle or the pain or the distress has has is gone wow yeah like i no longer i'm still intellectually disappointed and i still will occasionally stare into the darkness and and see the void Mm -hmm. but i'm like yeah but this is a part of the human condition you know existentialists and even people currently there's just a group of us and this is how we see the world uh, you know, we are social creatures, and when I find my tribe, <laughs> I'm like, okay, we're in this. It's we're in this together. This is this is us, and there's nothing I can do to help them, and there's nothing they can do to help me. We're we're just here. It was a moment of clarity for me. So, how can we engineer that? Well, what I would say is not to impose this you know for katie from uk we can't tell her you got to be like bob no what i think is the key is to keep attacking it or keep trying new things because i think uh, prolonged grief in particular can and and my existential dread can be stuck when you don't uh, try new approaches when you don't come at it from a different angle you know, when you were uh, in this state of grief in those six years, you were probably coming at it from the same angle oh, all the time. Absolutely. And so it's not a matter of someone coming to you. Like maybe that would be the time machine. Instead of you going back and saying, okay, Bob, from you know 2001 or something, you, um, it's not... You know, I could tell you to let go, or I could tell you to realize that it's over. But we all understand you're not going to do that. But what I could tell you to do is to maybe come at it from different angles. Try other avenues and come to your own conclusions. But don't come at it from the same at angle every single time. When it pops into your head, maybe, you know, try five other five other other directions. You know, just try it on. See how it goes for you. Would that have worked? I wouldn't have known what the five other things might be. Uh. 
it helped to boil the thing down to the facts. Like the facts are present moment bits. The facts are, you know, that relationship is over. And no predictions about the future, though I wouldn't buy that lottery ticket. Um, even I wouldn't have bought that lottery ticket back then. Um, but the fact is, is it is over now. Like right. Do you now, think if you would have hammered that, that that would have planted a seed that could have grown f- and could have pulled you out of it, say four years in instead of six years out? Maybe. I think if if we're gonna have time machines, I think the better move would be to take that me and bring me forward in time to show me it's gonna be okay. Hmm. You you will move through this, you know, and you'll take as long as you take. Maybe it'll shorten it to see that it's gonna be okay. Hmm. There'll there'll be Colleen. God. So you think it might have been necessary? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. For for whatever reason, I it it was for my life to unfold the way it has. It was necessary. I'm not saying that um, Katie's doomed to you know nine more years or anything, but um, in order for my life to unfold the way it has or is, it was absolutely necessary. But it wasn't good, and um, well. Um, you know, it's kind of a dialectic because on the one hand, yeah, it makes sense that we think about, well, how do you shorten that? And it is shortenable. And on the other hand, um, we're only going around the once. You know, that um, that uh, film, uh, Blade Runner, mm-hmm. you know, the end of that film is Rucker mm-hmm. Hauer. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about the loss of a collection of experiences. Right? When I think about I don't, I'm not afraid of death. What, what makes me really sad is the loss of the collection of experiences. Like the other day I was thinking, I'm 54 now. I've been a therapist for 30 something years, 30 something. Anyways. Um, and I'm only just getting good at it, you know, which, you know, I could have said that 15 years ago and I'll probably say it in 40 years. Oh, I'm just getting good at it. Cause what that, what that'll mean at that time is different from what it means today. But the loss of the gathering of skill and capacity makes me really sad. Mm. I guess, though, that's only as good as it is useful. Huh? Um, uh, being a collection of clinical skill is only as good as it is useful. So if it isn't useful, then it has no value to me. Is that true? Yeah. That's true for me, I think. But I got the impression you just liked the, I don't know, the challenge and the, and the, the discovery. I do like that. I do. I like learning. I like growing. I like, um, you know, academic learning. Yeah, it's somewhat interesting. But I like the um, experiential, experiential parts of of my my job. And the growth that comes from that, the growth that comes from my own personal counseling. Um, but I love that it, as far as I know, it has use, it has value. It adds something. I think that's meaningful to me to make a contribution, not to just collect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hope Katie will just practice accepting what's true and notice what it feels like inside when she does. And and by the way, practicing accepting something is, you, you cannot make yourself accept anything 
you can't do what all you can do is turn towards acceptance that's all anybody can do and in my case that relationship is over is it also we have to accept other things that are factual the things that are true the things that are 100 percent true we don't want to and we don't have to accept anything that's not true so what's true for me is it is over that was what was true back then and that's what catalyzed um move my grief along mm-hmm. from being stuck to unstuck and so um if she focuses on what's true when she noticed resistance come up it wouldn't be to fight the resistance it would be to in- be interested and curious about it what happens when i when i observe the facts and when i state the facts and my guess is that with the practice repetition of stating facts and turning towards again and again and again because we'll fall into denial she'll fall into denial i did um, um, but, but, um, acceptance will grow, evolve, eh, evolve's not a good way to put it. It'll grow. Mm-hmm. Interesting talk. Yeah. All right. This next email is from patron Grace from Nashville. She writes, as a clinician, how do you handle seeing so much misinformation so freely thrown around in the media without getting frustrated? I am a counseling master's student. I get incredibly frustrated with how society talks about mental health. How do you handle this frustration and have compassion for those who don't understand, even when they're spreading false information? I have a strong desire to correct these people, especially people on the internet. It still really aggravates me how often people so freely throw around incorrect clinical terms. Bob, what do you think? Oh, you know, I probably can't relate to this as because you're not on the internet. I don't go on the internet. Yeah. I read the news sometimes, but yeah. So, um, I don't get. I don't find myself bothered by other people's opinions. What about like in person? If you were just in at a party and someone started talking about like, well, you know, borderlines, they're crazy. Yeah, I wouldn't love it. I doubt in in a social situation like that, I would um, object much. Um, you shot me down one time when we were talking about... Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know you are. We were in a cab. Yeah. But it was good, though. I, and I think about it every time yeah. as a one, to not stigmatize people with schizophrenia, and two, to think about what I'm about to say as to whether or not it's based in reality or based on just a sort of cultural vibe that I've picked up on. Right. You know. Which can be hard to distinguish. It can. Bias and all. But I think the key is, is before you say something, just think, wait, where do I get this information from? You know, where did I get it from? Did I get it from a a really academic, reliable source? Or did I just kind of hear it from someone that I respect? Because not everyone you respect says things that is respectable. No. Um, But anyway, so, okay. Now I'm on the internet a lot. I'm on Reddit a lot. Obviously, I'm on YouTube a lot. So... Um, so you're asking, you know, uh, does it aggravate me? Yeah, it aggravates me, patron Grace. Uh, but you know, I've become mostly numb to it. I'm guessing for you, Grace, you're a new master student. And so you're suddenly realizing the contrast between clinically sound discussions and the 99% of what's on the internet, which is just when it comes to psychology, which is all basic misinformation mm. and and hardcore misinformation you know there's not a lot of people on line spouting off misinformation about like rocket fuel or <laughs> or 
cancer surgery or something. But mm. somehow, because everyone has a brain and everyone has a personality and everyone tries to evaluate themselves and other people, everyone thinks of themselves as an armchair psychologist. Mm -hmm. And some are good at it, some are not. Mm. But um, so there's a lot of misinformation. And I think you're probably just more acutely aware of it because you're suddenly aware of it. Whereas, you know, I've been, since the internet has been around, I've been dealing with this. So, uh, or it's also possible that I've been beaten down by it partially. I've been, hmm. but just been demoralized into a place of complacency. I don't know. So what to do? Well, at my best, here are the steps. One is, is take a deep breath. As soon as you see the misinformation, try to relax because it's probably not an emergency. So <laughs> if you come from a place of emergency, you might screw things up for yourself and others. Two is make sure you're actually right. Actually, mm. you know, you, you might think you're right because you heard a little bit of information, you know, Dunning-Kruger effect, look that up. You're a master student, you know, a little bit of stuff. And sometimes that means people think they know a lot of stuff when in mm. fact they know actually very little stuff. It's one thing about, it's one benefit of learning more and more and more is I learn more and more and more how little I know, <laughs> even about the stuff that I'm an expert on, actually. You know, if I read, when I read John Bowlby, for example, or like people who study, you know, attachment theory their whole life, I'm like, oh, that that's someone that really understands all the ins and outs and all the theories and all the research and all the physiology. You know, those people, they spend a lot of time. I get it more than most people, but I, I don't... So when I speak, even about things that I consider myself expert on, I I absolutely know I am not like the expert. You know, as a whole, if I if I if a if one of those people heard me talk, they'd be like, uh, eh, you not you don't really have that right. So anyway, make sure you actually get it. Don't assume that they're wrong because it's possible that you're both wrong or you're both right or something. Um, number three is. Assess whether you are prepared to get aggressive pushback. Because if you're going to say something, mm. you're likely going to get aggressive pushback. And if you're not prepared for that, then just don't bother. Yeah. Four is, if you are ready for aggressive pushback, then calmly and politely provide information. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, people are much more likely to at least be neutral if you're if you're nice about it. People on the internet are horrible to each other. It's It's ridiculous there's this sort of tone that people have about slapping back and i'm like was your intention to actually change that person's mind because you're terrible at that um and number five is is don't do not get into an argument so because mm -hmm. this is what i used to do is someone would comment on one of my videos and argue with me and they would be wrong and i would uh i would politely uh correct them and say actually ddd they always want to argue with you or well, not always, but they often want to argue with you they, and you're doing it over texting. So you can't really go back and forth. It's this really slow, annoying argument. Mm. And it, it, unless you really have a prediction that this is going to go well for your mood, you know, p politely say what your opinion is. And if they slap back themselves, just move on, you know, it, it just cut your losses. Don't, you've probably run into and maybe you planted a seed there but you know that's what i've decided to do the other thing is is spread better info and that's what i try to do in this podcast right you know uh, be active be one of the people on the internet that actually starts conversations instead of reacts to things mm. 
So, you know, like when I do Tuesday, I don't know if you know this, Bob, but every Tuesday I post a research finding in the form of a tougher bluff or true or false statement, you know, like research shows that humans, you know, one out of 10 humans worries about death, that kind of thing. Uh, tougher bluff. And then people, and then I always will um, post the actual research study. Right it's, a, it's a bit of a silly game because the way I phrase it isn't always exactly on the money when it comes to research. But what I'd like to think that it does is it exposes a lot of people to this notion that research, scientific research is happening and you probably don't hear about it because it's not sensationalized in the news or it's not politicized or something. There's, you know, this whole group of scientists that are just slowly chipping away at our uh, under misunderstanding of reality and just slowly understanding things. And, mm-hmm. and we can, we can learn a lot when you just go to the source, you know, go to the data. And, and so, um, I would like to think I'm a part of those people on the internet that are trying to actually spread science and spread empirical observation and help people understand that there is a process to, to discover nature and we don't have to just spout shit on YouTube about, you know, feminazis and malignant narcissists who are oh. gaslighting everyone. Oh. <laughs> oh. That sounds awful. Yeah. Yeah, if you don't, I mean, so you don't know this, and I was saying this earlier, that for the heterosexual cis men who are hurt, they will coagulate into a group of people who are completely convinced that feminists have ruined our society. They've met, they've made women into feminazis and Mm. controllers of sex. You know, these people that know they can manipulate men through sex and will utilize that power for their own gain. It's really bizarre. It sounds tedious. It is tedious and it's strong, man. Yeah. There's millions of them all over the world who've been indoctrinated into this idea. Hmm. And people have even emailed in. We've worked with some of these people over the podcast to try to pull them out of that. It's a, it's basically a cult on the internet. Yeah. And then on the other side, you have cis women, heterosexual, who are convinced all their ex-boyfriends are gaslighting malignant narcissists because oh. that's what the internet will tell them. Oh. And it's possible sure. that for some of them, but probably not all of them, given oh, yeah. the, the prevalence, unless this one particular malignant gaslighting narcissist is dating literally thousands of women every day, <laughs> which they probably would you know, imagine is true. And, you know, everyone's hurt. And that's that's real. Yeah, everyone's in pain. That's yeah. real. Everyone right. was dumped in a hard, w- unfair way. Perhaps that's real, but their interpretation of it is the part that uh, the uh, you know I don't know. It's hard to watch people armchair psych. You know, there'd be nothing wrong, as I always say. There'd be nothing wrong with it, all these people going on the internet and saying, "I just got broken up with, and I feel really bad." And can someone please? you know, support me. And I've been, I've been broken up with five times and I feel five times over really bad. I'm really sad. And I have a lot of anger. Can someone help me? Uh, that hundred percent. But this notion that like, I'm going to armchair, uh, diagnose all of my ex-boyfriends or ex-girlfriends, um, 
using these really complicated terms. You know, research shows, research shows that half or most clinicians don't really understand narcissistic personality disorder. These are people that study it. (laughs) So lay people, good luck. You know, it's a hard (laughs) thing to get. It's, it's really weird. Uh, And it's just a, it's just a construct. It's not even a real thing. You know, it's just a way of conceptualizing people. It's not like you have a blood test and there you go. So anyway, I know I'm ranting. Let's go into another email. Uh, Patron Luke says, can I ask a new therapist if they are a Trump supporter? I am beginning therapy for the first time in my life next week. After spending the last year managing a homeless shelter and being involved politically, I want to know if it is ethical and appropriate to ask a new therapist where they stand on certain issues before beginning with them. I wouldn't feel comfortable, for example, receiving counseling from someone who has disdain for the homeless as that is an issue I work with every day and hold close to my heart. What do you think, Bob? You can ask whatever you want. You're, you can ask, you're under no ethical guideline here. You can ask a therapist anything you want. They may or may not answer. Um, hopefully they answer. That seems like a question that, you know, what you'd be doing is eliminating a distraction. So you don't want to be distracted by someone who has a political view that's uh, vastly different from your own or that you believe is, you know, um, incorrect or something. You don't want to be distracted by that. Great. You'll probably be able to find a therapist that, you know, has a similar enough idea that you won't be distracted by it. So, yeah, if you need to know, if that helps you, then ask away. Yeah. People are, I think, confused as clients about these kinds of questions because... They think there's some people say, is it ethical for me to ask my therapist, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you are under no ethical codes. Your therapist is under an ethical code. You have no ethical code as a client. Right. You can, within the realm of the law. Now, you could say there are moral things or sort of fairness things. But as a client, there's, you're, you're good to go. If you have a good, I mean, just, you could even just say, so I want to ask you if you are cool you know, if you are anti-homelessness or you're a Republican or you're a Trump supporter or something, and I'm not even sure if it's okay to ask, but that's what's on my mind. What mm-hmm. do you think? You know, just have a conversation with about it. Um, I've had people ask me questions like this. Sure. Uh, they'll say, they might ask me um, about my feelings about atheists. They might ask mm-hmm. me about my feelings about gay people. Mm-hmm. Um, but one really sticks out for me it because it was more along these lines was that a client had seen my disclosure statement and on my disclosure statement it said that I am LGBTQIA friendly, I'm poly friendly. So these are I guess signals to a certain group of people that says I'm a liberal. Oh. And or likely a liberal or something. And so th- that comes with it a, a lot of other ideas that might be threatening to half of Americans. And so this guy came in and he was a you know, uh, how do I describe him without revealing information? Uh, likely a Republican. Let's just put it that way. And one of the first questions he asked was, well, I read on your disclosure statement, you know, these things. I might have even said that I'm social justice oriented or something. Mm-hmm. And he said something like, I read that. Um, I'm just wondering if that makes you prejudiced against Republicans or something like that. And 
I, you know, we had a long conversation and I, I, I don't remember exactly what I said, but apparently I put him at ease because, you know, he continued, but, but yeah, you should ask that question yeah. because if it's a barrier to you feeling comfortable, then have it. Now your client or the therapist might not answer. They might go, I'm sorry, I don't really answer that question. Sure. But if you're wondering if you're, if you're, if you're safe with me, given yeah. what you're saying, like, yes, I, I, I'd like to think that. We can talk about that. And if you're ever concerned, then I, you know, I'd like to, but I, I do find that this is way more prevalent recently after George Floyd in particular, or maybe after the Trump administration, I'm not sure, but I'm getting way more questions from clients, not my clients, but like people writing in Yeah, and it, and it feels very relevant to the times. And I, and I think for a good reason that we are unsure about who we're dealing with until we, you know, if, if you are say, you know, like a, a question that I would get would be, I'm an Asian American and most therapists are white. How can I know that this person doesn't have massive prejudice against Asian Americans? How do I know that? I, you know, a few years ago, I think most people would either say, well, I'd like to think that white people are cool with, I mean, it's, it's 2018 things should be fine by now, you know, but given what we've seen on the internet, like people, you know, over the past four years, five years suddenly have this license to be outwardly racist. And we're seeing, we're actually seeing like, Oh no, uh, racism is a alive and well. And we've always known that. I mean, in my academic circles, there was, there's always been the discussion of, the transition from overt racism in the sixties and, and before and covert racism, which many would argue is worse because you don't know who you're dealing with. Yeah. And so, uh, so the other thing is that, you know, people of color and oppressed groups are more emboldened for good reasons, justifiably to say, I have the right to actually ask that question. You know, I, I'm no longer going to sit here and just hope that this person isn't one of those people that hates hates my people. I'm actually going to check because I deserve to be safe. I deserve to be with someone that, lo and behold, isn't a white supremacist. And lo and behold, actually doesn't think Asian Americans are dirty, uh, you know, whatevers who are invading their land. You know, uh, mm -hmm. I, des I deserve that. And so a lot more questions because you know back in the day it wasn't as you're a white guy yeah so it's it wouldn't you know it's not frequent i'm guessing that you would get questions like well how do you feel about black people mm -hmm. well how do you feel about black lives matter how do you feel about homeless people how do you feel about gay people are you one of those people you know prove to me that you're actually not one of those people because i can't work with someone who is like that and I think it's a good thing, but it certainly adds a a new layer to our competency that we have to build that wasn't uh, formally discussed, at least when we were in graduate school. I like it. Have you been asked much of that lately? Asked if I am... A white no. supremacist oh. bigot? <laughs> no, I haven't ever been asked. I'm pretty... I think I communicate that I'm interested in the people that phone me up or look for me that I'm interested in their safety and welfare 
and I'm explicit about, you know, I want to do whatever I can to help or make you feel safe. And if there's a difference in race or sexual orientation or something else, usually what I do is I just bring it up and I say, well, you know, I'm a white man, I'm a cis man, I'm a straight man. How, you know, I want to make sure that you're getting what you need out of this. So um, if there's ever anything I can do to help you feel safe, it isn't your job to educate me, right? I can't claim to not have blind spots. I might. But, um, 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 you know, I want you to feel safe. And I think saying it overtly is essential. Mm. Yeah, um, right. Because some people yeah. will want to say something, but yeah. they'll have these notions of it's unethical for yeah. a client to ask a question. Right. <laughs> or impolite or yeah. something, or assumptive, you know, presumptive. I was treating a couple... Um, where one of the partners was white and the other one was black. And in their first session, I mentioned um, race, you know, sort of the the plain truth is, you know, you're talking to a white guy and I want you to feel safe and comfortable here. And what the um, African-American person said to me was, you know, nobody asks. Nobody ever brings it up. I was surprised that you brought it up. It was nice. It was refreshing because it's, everybody pretends like they're not if if I don't say anything that I'm not racist nobody brings it up and I somebody taught me I don't know who taught me somebody taught me Bob be explicit don't mm. presume anything yeah 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 it sends so many signals yeah. one that I'm open to talking about yes. it two this is not like other situations this is a you know I in graduate school I there were like a handful of professors who would refer to the therapy office as a sacred place. Yeah. Sacred meaning it is, you know, people will, a church is a holy place. You yeah. have holy water. You know, what do we mean by that? You know, what do we, clearly us humans in various different cultures have this um, Jungian archetype, if you will, of the transcendent. Mm. The beyond the, or oh. the liminal space between between the world and our wor normal worries and the heavens and wow. the next level, you know, and we have these vaulted cathedrals and it feels different. And no human can walk into a temple in Japan without feeling that that awe mm -hmm. or that. You know, you'll see kids walking into temples and they'll get quiet. You know, they're, they're, it, we just have this thing in us, you know. And I think a therapy office is like that, too. A courtroom is like that. You don't walk into a courtroom and just start chewing gum and farting. You know what I mean? Like, you feel like this is this is a transcendent place. We are between the world and somewhere else. The The religion of the Constitution or the religion of the law. I think we need that for i don't know help with our lives it provides meaning or a, a space to mm -hmm. to do things that are beyond our everyday mm -hmm. and the sacred space of the office therapy office is like that now i'm not saying they're supposed to look at us like priests no but i'm saying that it's a special place yeah. it's different yeah. and in this office we can talk about those things yeah and we can we can take the time and I, as the leader of this office, as a therapist, will be very intentional about 
how you feel and about what you need and about uh, making this place safe and making it open. And if I screw up, I'm going to take it very seriously. Whereas when you're just at lunch with a friend, it, it doesn't have that feeling, you know, and that's good because we can't be in a sacred space all the time. You need that more casual place. But sometimes you need the, and maybe it's even related, uh, you know, <laughs> to our conversation before of returning to that womb on some level. Hmm. You know, you could say, now I'm really, you know, just smoking pot and, and, and talking like a stoner. But the the feeling of returning to something that is all-encompassing and and beyond. Anyway. Wow. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Well, maybe. <laughs> uh, all right. Before I start talking about how the universe is infinite, let's move on <laughs> to a different uh, question here. Up to your patron, Ashley from Canada, she writes, What is the psychology behind righteous indignation? I heard Bob speak on an episode about his tendency towards righteous indignation, and it, and it resonated with me. Mm. I am always quick to cut people off, mm. and the feeling is always one of righteous indignation. I've done this most of my life. Currently, I am estranged from my father. Mm. I am also estranged from my best friend of 30 years because mm. they both hurt me separately. Mm. It's like, I'm a good person, moral and just, and they are not, and therefore, they are not deserving of being in my life, Bob. Mm. What is the psychology behind righteous indignation? Well, I, I, I don't want to speak generally. I, I could talk about me, um, and maybe that'll have some... Um, uh, maybe that'll have some value or merit or, you know, translation or whatever. Um, I think for me, it when I feel ashamed, that's my defense. That's my safe place is like just to assume the mantle of aggressive certainty and absolute correctness. Um, if I don't expect that the other will be responsive, I'll double down on my position um, and become righteously indignant or aggressively certain or whatever. And I think it's also a way for me to not feel vulnerable. Like I think probably when I'm righteously indignant, most of the time underneath, I do feel vulnerable. And so this is like, you know, um, the best defense is a good offense kind of thing. So I don't know. I don't have more to say than that. What do you think? Well, why did, why were you laughing when you were reading, when I was reading the email? I don't know. Um, I, I, it's, um, why am I laughing? There's something that's kind of, um, um, amused is not the way that sounds patronizing. That's not how I feel, but, um, uh, the person is holding a mirror up for me in writing in and asking about righteous indignation. And it's something that I am very familiar with and very familiar with talking about. And, um, I don't know why I'm laughing. I actually can't put my finger on it. Are you embarrassed? Eh, maybe a little, but not that much. Well, when you were talking about righteous indignation before, which I can't remember, eh. this person remembers, yeah. Ashley does, what were you talking about? I don't know. I, I imagine this, that, that that's the place I go. I'd safe places to be righteously indignant, you know, aggressively certain that I am correct. That is the right thing, and I'm going to be, you know. And I'm done with you. Yeah. Like, I'm right. It's dismissive. And you've... You've wronged You're me? You're wrong. I'm right. You're the wronger. I'm the writer. And yeah. I'm done with you. Yeah. 
Yeah. And therefore, I don't have to listen to anything you say, right? I don't have to, you know, um, I know this about myself. I know that in my, I, that I will, I have this, uh, capacity, vulnerability, whatever, to become righteously indignant. And, uh, I usually control the narrative though. I usually bring that up. Um, and it's, I don't know, there's something fun about. Admit it. Say, I'm sorry. I'm being righteously indignant right now. Is that what you're saying? Uh, well, no, I mean, I talk about it like the way we're talking about it now. It's oh. like, I'll say that to my students. I'll say it to my clients occasionally. I'll say it to Colleen, of course, because she sees it. <laughs> um, I, yeah, maybe I'm embarrassed, but I don't, it's not like, oh, I want to mortify and crawl under a rock. There is something kind of funny about it. Funny that Ashley yeah. noticed it and uh-huh. took the time to email. Yeah, that's kind of cool. And was like, um, I'm like Bob in this yeah, way. Right. Yeah. Have you met other people that were like this? Oh, I mean, sure. I think everyone's like it. Yeah, everybody obviously. has moments, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, half the reason I talk about it and, you know, when I'm teaching DBT or whatever is because everybody else knows it, knows this experience of it. And I just want to get the cards on the table so that we can all just like accept and move along and, you know, yeah. look beneath the hood if that's what we want to do. And yeah. Yeah, that's one of those things that doesn't get normalized enough, really. The eventual mindset of, I'm right, they are wrong, and they don't deserve me to even think more about it. Right. We're done. Yeah. I'm done. Mic drop. Yeah. (laughs) When... And sure, if it's the bus driver or some random acquaintance, then fine, but if it's your wife <laughs> yeah there's a that'll that's a different kind of problem yeah yeah you can't you can't mic drop on a wife because you got to come back into the room eventually mm-hmm. and eventually and pick up that mic again uh, <laughs> I, think, I think i dropped this yeah. <laughs> let me just put that back on the stand yeah it's sort of like you know you mic drop and then you storm out but you open the wrong door and you walk in the closet <laughs> And then, like, two seconds later, you sheepishly come out and yeah. say, I think I dropped this mic. I'm sorry. Yeah. All Maybe right. Humility. I think that's probably why I'm laughing, is I have a bit of humility about it. Yeah. I hope so, anyways. Uh, one last email, because we got some time here. Okay. Anonymous listener, she writes, One of my abusers committed suicide amidst, oh. amidst an investigation oh. into the abuse. Oh. And I'm wondering if it's normal to feel guilt in that regard. He was my friend before he was my abuser, and Mm. I just feel bad. I just want to know if it's a normal feeling. Bob, what do you think? Yeah, I think it probably is for a lot of people. It's not not guaranteed, and you don't... It's not like you did something wrong. Just because we have feelings doesn't mean that they are supported by the facts of the situation. So we feel sad when there's no loss. We feel anger when there's no threat. We feel shame when there's no um, rejection. We feel guilt when we haven't done anything wrong. We feel scared when there's no danger. So the fact that we have the feeling doesn't mean that it points at something true. I feel guilty frequently and I haven't done anything wrong. I feel shamed, anxious when there's no danger. I mean, I feel these things a lot. Um, so feeling guilt doesn't, doesn't suggest that you've done anything bad or wrong, but I think a lot of us would feel guilty. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't know the circumstances, but it's possible that the anonymous listeners reporting or testimony led to factors that led to the completion of the suicide. Maybe. Yeah. And it, and you were anonymous listener, a friend before 
he was your abuser. And so mm-hmm. we have complicated feelings. It's, yeah. it's, it's common for people to have, ex- unless someone jumps out at you from the woods and assaults you, uh, you know, if, if you know the abuser, which you often do, it's very common to have a variety of feelings of obviously trauma and fear and hatred and anger, but also possibly affection missing that the the person that they used to be mm-hmm. or attraction to that person wanting to be with them again yeah. on a certain level in, yeah. in the, all the mixture of all the feelings. And so, yeah, but yeah, I've never heard that concept before, Bob, that, I mean, of course, well, no, I've, I've never heard it before, you know, articulated like that, that we have feelings that aren't necessarily, um, indicative of, uh, something that happened, you know, like, yeah. how do you put it? Not supported by the facts of the situation. Not supported by the facts. So we can be angry and there's not a threat. We right. can, we, or we can be f- scared and not a threat. Yeah. We can be angry and there's not an injustice. Right. We can be sad and there's, there's no loss and we can right. feel guilt and we didn't do anything wrong. That's interesting to have it put that way. Of mm-hmm. course it makes sense, but to have it so kind of plainly put that way, I wonder if that really helps people out there to absorb that into your, you know, soul right. of like when you feel feelings, like don't assume that it it means what it's designed to mean. Yeah. Guilt is a there to help us feel sad that we did something wrong. Yeah. But you could still feel guilt and have done nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. Yeah. yeah. You could feel scared and there's literally nothing dangerous happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, you know, it's a feeling that you have and sometimes it indicates that. And That's what a phobia is. It's when you're scared and there's no, no danger. Right. Yeah. I saw this New Yorker cartoon. It's this kid standing at a blackboard doing a math problem. The math problem is seven plus five. And the kid writes 35, and he's standing there, this little guy, and he's screaming up at the teacher, it's how I feel! I, I think uh, feelings are a good source of information, but they are not the end-all, be-all of, you know, the truth. It's just, they're, they're real when they happen. If I'm afraid, it is indeed a fact of the universe that I'm afraid, but my fear doesn't necessarily mean that I'm in danger. That's a really important one. Mm. You know, because like, I I can't, I'm thinking about people that I've treated over the years who were convinced that if they had a feeling, it meant that the feeling was indicative of the facts. So like one person was afraid of, um, if they didn't have Xanax with them, I think it was Xanax, they didn't have that with them, that they would be in danger, right? And they were not willing to let go of, they didn't even use it. They just carried it around like a safety cue. And one of the things we know about safety cues is they actually reinforce fear so but she was convinced that the that because it was scary it was dangerous to let go of the xanax and i get it i mean on some i get it on one level it's like well when you're that scared you perceive threat you just you know feelings affect what you think and how you act and how you act and think become fuel for feeling and you get stuck in around and around and that's what a mood is Anyway, so, you know, it was scary to her. It was not dangerous. It was just scary. But but intense fear is compelling, just like intense any emotion is very compelling. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. 